Brad, our senior pastor, has been preaching a series on the, the gospel according to Abraham and looking at the book of Genesis and seeing what we can learn about the gospel from the life of the sort of first patriarch of the, the Old Testament and then eventually to his sons and then their sons. Uh, Brad's in Walla Walla. We had a presbytery meeting up there this, this weekend and he's up there uh, preaching at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Walla Walla, uh, which is one of our sister churches. And so I'll continue here by looking at Isaac and Ishmael and, uh, and what we can learn about the gospel from them. So few things feel worse, I think, than being on the outside looking in at something. Um, there's nothing more awkward than somebody tells, you, uh, tells a joke in front of you and everybody laughs and you're the only one who doesn't get it. So what do you do in that situation? If you're like me, you fake it. <laughs> and you laugh wholeheartedly even though you had no idea what they meant. Or uh, when you're the, you know, uh, say there's a pickup basketball game, and you're kind of the last person there, and you're, there's an odd number. And so they're kind of, well, sorry, man. You know, maybe you can sub in uh, and play in a little bit. What do you normally do? Well, if you're like me, you sort of fake it. And you say, like, well, I didn't want to play anyway. I, I actually just came to watch. You know, I just uh, wanted to see how good you guys were and, and cheer you on, basically. Or you could be the last person to see the big movie that everybody's been seeing. Or you could be finally binge-watching that TV show that all your friends have seen and are talking about just because you can't stand to be on the outside looking in and saying, I don't really know what's going on. There's even a whole... Uh, Geico Insurance has a whole ad campaign about this, right? It's, uh, hmm, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Yeah, everybody knows that. Yeah, well, did you know that Pinocchio is a bad motivational speaker? That's my favorite one. You should Google, you should Google that. <laughs> but being on the outside looking in is a theme that, that is in the passages that we're going to look at in Genesis today. One of the big questions in these passages is who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And so as we read through, we have to, we have to ask. We have to see what the text is telling us about who's on the inside and who's on the outside. So let's look at it, beginning at uh, chapter 16, verse 1. What you need to know is in chapter 15, right before this, God promised Abram that he was going to have a son. And this son was going to be the fulfillment of the promises of God. Well, ten years have passed. And then we, then we have this. And it says uh, at 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. I'll pause there and just say, you know, this is so foreign to us. But this was a really normal practice in the ancient world. And a child born by this method was considered to be a full child in the family. And we, we know that because of the 12 uh, grandchildren that Abraham was going to have. Uh, this, was, this was a part of that. Uh, some of the 12 were born through servants and some were born through wives. But they were all accounted as full-fledged sons. And the reason that this was a common practice in that culture was not because they were they were, you know, weird or immoral or something. The, the reason was because in that culture, the most important thing you could possibly do would be to have an heir. 
In Abraham's case, for example, his family was not just him and his wife and a couple friends and a couple servants or whatever. The, <clears throat> the best estimate of how big Abraham's household was was that maybe when it says Abraham had, had a household and they picked up and they moved their tents from here to there, we're talking about like a thousand people. It's like a small city. Uh, there's all kinds of shepherds and workers and servants. Uh, and all of them, all of the thousand were basically dependent on Abram for their livelihood. If Abram doesn't have an heir, then basically all a thousand of them would suddenly be on their own when Abram dies. It's a... It's a really problematic situation in that time and culture. Um, so that's, that's what's going on when Sarah comes to Abram and says this. And in, uh, back to the text in 16, verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave, you a, I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. So instead of joy being the response at the news of this much-needed heir. Instead of a thousand people rejoicing over this, there's immediately conflict. So much conflict, in fact, that Hagar is rejected, and she flees away out into the wilderness. But here's the problem. Do you see the problem? When Hagar flees out into the wilderness, what has she done? She's taken the badly-needed heir with her. So this would have sent the whole family into something of a panic, the whole community into something of a panic. Remember, God does not tell Abram and Sarai that there will be another son, the true heir, Isaac. He doesn't tell them about that until the next chapter, chapter 17. And so at this point, they believe that Hagar's child is the one that God had promised to send them. Only now Hagar has run away and taken the child with her. So what's, what's Abram's and Sarai's reaction to that? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But here's what the text does tell us. It tells us God's reaction to that. Look at chapter 16, verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And the spring was on the way to Shur. And he said, Shur is, by the way, toward the direction of Egypt. So she's going back to the land of her birth. Uh, and, she, and, and the Lord said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one, my seer. 
It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this interchange between Hagar and the angel is very, very surprising. Notice what Hagar says to God. You are a God of seeing. That's a really kind of weird, it translates really weird into English, doesn't it? Well, it's because it's a, it's a weird phrase even in, in uh, Hebrew. It's actually a pun. It's, uh, the, a pun is a word that's meant to be taken two ways, you see. And uh, what Hagar is saying here is, is, is two senses of seeing. First, you are a God of seeing. That is, you have seen me in my predicament, and you have reached out to me and saved me. Um, but then also she means, I have seen you, which is very surprising, because uh, that makes Hagar, very surprisingly, the first person in the entire Bible since Adam and Eve walk out of the Garden of Genesis to see God face to face, for God to appear and speak to her face to face and intervene personally on her behalf. That's very surprising to me. Um, it raises a question. Why? Why would God reveal himself to Hagar? Why does God so far go so far to protect, protect and preserve them? I mean, after all, we have the rest of the story. And having the rest of the story, we know that Abram is going to have another son, Isaac, born of Abram's wife, Sarai. And it's this son who will turn out to be the real fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abram. So why would God save Hagar and Ishmael because frankly they're not necessary the whole thing could move forward without them why would God so go so far as to save them well, before we even try to answer that question here's the thing God doesn't save Hagar and Ishmael once in the wilderness he does it again he saves them twice look at verse uh, look at chapter 21 there's a part of chapter 21 in your bulletin it's years later, Isaac, the true child of promise, has been born. And you see here, the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw Hagar, the, uh, the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. And that also, there's, a, there's a, several puns in this text, and one of them is laughing. Uh, you see, Isaac's name means laughter. The name Isaac means laughter. When Sarah first heard the promise that she was going to have a baby, she, la she laughed mockingly at that idea. However, her laughter turned from mocking into laughter of joy when Isaac was born. And now Ishmael ruins the big celebration by mocking Isaac with laughter. And so there's all kinds of laughing here. The text is contrasting different reactions to the child of promise. Will the person who encounters the child of promise laugh to rejoice or laugh to mock? That's what the text is putting you putting before you. Are you going to be a laugh? Are you going to be a rejoicer or a mocker? Sarah learns to laugh with uh, rejoicing. Ishmael only can mock. And so here's the, the rest of chapter 21. So Sarah said to Abraham, 
Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. And God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the sons, son of the slave woman also because of your offspring. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And there's a third pun right there. The pun is, what, is it, what does Ishmael's name mean? God hears. And here it says, God, hear, God, heard the son, God, God heard the voice of the boy. So in Hebrew, that's Ishmael, Ishmael. God heard Ishmael. Get up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. And the story goes on from there. So God twice personally intervenes to save Hagar and Ishmael. That leaves us with a big question. Why would he do that? Um... Before we even answer that question, I want to point out one thing to you. Over the years, many people have accused Christianity of being anti-women or oppressive to women, chauvinistic. But Robert Rayburn, who's a longtime pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, he pointed out the following. He says, uh, This is the only instance in all of the many ancient Near Eastern texts that we have it's the only instance where a deity or his messenger calls a woman by name and thereby invests her with real dignity in the entire ancient world. This is the first. From Sarah to Hagar to Deborah to Ruth and Esther and Hannah and Mary and Priscilla to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The Bible is littered with women of substance who make vital contributions to the kingdom of God. And so I just point that out to just say, and you, when we read through this passage, we should note that. It's, it's important. The Bible is not anti-women and does not advocate oppression of any kind. Maybe there have been Christians who have been guilty of chauvinism, but God's treatment of Hagar in this passage is remarkable. And an example of how such behavior, chauvinism, is against the teaching of the Bible and even against God's own example. But back to our big question. Why would God reach out so far to save Hagar and Ishmael, especially when they're not central to what he's doing? Let's dig deeper and see what we can find. Throughout the Bible, God often designs the stories of his people to form certain patterns. 
that echo throughout the Bible. And when we find a pattern, when we hear an echo, we're meant to compare the two stories, one with the other, so that we can learn from them both together. And there isn't a very clear echo of Hagar's story in the Bible. We find it in the book of Exodus, which follows right after Genesis. We read about a man named Moses, who twice went into the wilderness. The first time he went there to flee his master's wrath. The second time he was thrown out, and he carried with him the survival of God's people, the nation of Israel. Both times that Moses went into the wilderness, God himself came and met with him face to face. And in the second case, God miraculously provided water and saved their lives. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you hear the echoes of Hagar's story? There's a pattern in Hagar's story and Moses' story. They were both made by God to echo each other. And don't forget that the person who recorded both of these stories, who wrote Genesis and Exodus, was Moses himself. We're definitely meant to compare these two stories. But what do we learn from them? We'll answer that in a minute. Here's a second pattern in this story. Both times that God saves Ishmael, he makes promises that he will one day be a mighty nation, free and unenslaved, with offspring beyond number. Does that sound like an echo of something else? It's the very same kind of promise that God made to Isaac. And so here you have the two brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, and God is making similar promises to both of them. A very clear echo there. And as these stories are recorded in Genesis, we are meant to see that the two sons are very much alike each other. Both Ishmael and Isaac had the same father. Both of them received the sign of the covenant by being circumcised. Both of them were similarly blessed by God. Both of them had the same divine intervention to save their future promises. So if the two brothers are set up to be so similar, where are the differences? What are we supposed to learn from that? Well, there's really only one substantive, huge, colossal, game-changing difference between them, and that is that only one of them can be the son of promise. It will be Isaac, God tells Abraham, not just Ishmael, or not Ishmael, that not just one, but all the nations of the world will be blessed. It will be Isaac and those who come after him who will be God's people. With Ishmael and his offspring fading into the background of God's salvation story throughout the Bible. Through the stories of Ishmael and Isaac, what God is trying to teach his people the readers of Genesis, us. What he's trying to teach anyone who will hear is that there, is, there can be only one true promised son of Abraham. Yes, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but God has designed that blessing to come through the one chosen son. And you see, the story of Hagar and Moses is echoed again later in the Bible. Centuries later, there was another man, a descendant of Isaac. Matthew the Apostle began his gospel by calling this man the true son of Abraham. That's in Matthew 1.1. He says this is the story of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. 
That's how he begins. Like Hagar and Ishmael and Moses, this new son of Abraham twice went out into the wilderness. The first time he suffered hunger and evil and was even threatened with death itself. But in the end, God's angels came and saved him. The second time, he was unjustly thrown out of the city and he carried with him the survival of God's people. But here the pattern is shockingly broken. When the new son of Abraham, Jesus our Savior, went out into the wilderness the second time, God did not meet him face to face to save him, like he did with Hagar and Ishmael and Moses. Instead, this time, the pattern is broken. He was left alone and forsaken by God and by man. The special son, the one greater than Isaac, was tortured and mocked and murdered. He knew what was going to happen to him, that God the Father was not going to intervene and save this time. But he willingly went out into the wilderness anyway. Why? Here's what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Let me put it this way. Isaac became Ishmael so that Ishmael could become Isaac. You see? Jesus, the chosen son, the one who possessed the covenant blessings of God, got himself thrown out into the wilderness And he did it so that we, who were out in the wilderness, far from the covenant blessings of God, could be brought back into the city, brought back into the family of God. That's what this story is ultimately really all about. You see, we tend to define ourselves if I could put it that way. We tend to define ourselves either by our value or our virtue. We think of ourselves as valuable because we have something to offer others. We think of ourselves as virtuous people who generally do the right thing even when it's hard. But here in Genesis, God makes it very clear that those are not the categories that he uses to to describe people, to define people. Ishmael and Isaac were the same in so many ways, but Isaac received God's covenant blessing and Ishmael did not. The only thing that truly defines us in God's eyes is whether we have received his covenant blessing through Jesus, the true son of Abraham, our Savior. It's so important that we stop trying to define ourselves in the categories of the world And start describing ourselves as God does. Are you male or female? Young or old? Rich or poor? Would you describe yourself as good or bad? A success or a failure? Smart or dumb? Beautiful or ugly? Our world has a way of pressing pressing us into those kinds of categories. And certainly some of them are important in their own way. And we, but we usually describe ourselves using categories like these. But there is one category that towers over all the others in terms of how it defines you. 
are you in Christ? Have you received the covenant blessings of God because you are united to Christ? Are you a Christian? If yes, then let all the other categories that define you fade into the background. Whenever you are tempted to think that you're valuable because you're successful or young or beautiful or hardworking, or whenever you are experiencing the shame that comes from being an ugly, stupid failure. Remind yourself that God our Father does not use any of those words to describe you. To Him you are His beloved child, thanks to Jesus going out into the wilderness to get you and bring you home. Or if you are not in Christ, then you are still out there, looking in at the blessing from the outside. So Genesis emphasizes here, there is only one true son of Abraham. Our culture says that there are many ways to God. And what ultimately matters most is our own personal preference. How I choose to pursue him is what's most important. And if I, as long as I do that, it'll, be, it'll work out. I, he'll accept that. But that's basically to say that God accepts us on our own terms. And that's a dangerous perspective because it goes against everything that we learn from this passage and God's word in general. One pastor put it this way. As politically incorrect and unwelcome as the message of Christ alone may be in our proud, superficial, and ephemeral age, we must be inflexible in proclaiming it. For the Lord Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And believe me, brothers and sisters, when the present silliness finally passes and when men and women come face to face once again with the true meaning and seriousness of human life nothing will make more sense and nothing will seem more necessary than hunting for and finding out the truth and when people begin caring about the truth once more they will once again be concerned less about the fact that so many deny the truth and more and more and more about whether or not they themselves have found and embraced it. Let's all of us be there now and then to help them find it where it can alone be found in the covenant blessings of God, in the word of that covenant, and in the lion of that covenant, the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Amen.